All right. I'm Nick. That's Rob. I'm in the West. He's in the East. We're meeting. East meets West. Great, solid intro. (laughs) I really got to think about those more. (laughs) I definitely won't replace that. I won't. I won't dub over that with my own voice saying something better. <laughs> Please don't. No. If uh, if there's one thing I value, it's transparency. Yeah. Yeah. Intellectual honesty. So uh, good to see you, Rob. It's great to see you. I'm I, glad we can actually see each other on occasions such as these. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. We uh, started snowing pretty heavily in the last couple of hours here. Oh, the right. The bus ride home. The bus ride home was kind of a nightmare. That's the whole but, uh, uh, eastern seaboard moving inward, I guess. Yeah, we always get. I mean, I think it went well. It hit New York and Boston area less hard than they were thinking, but still fairly hard. And then Montreal yesterday, and now here. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, it's, it's fine. Meanwhile, it in Calgary, it's been it's been above zero for like I guess a week now. We had a yeah, which couple days insane. where it was fourteen. Oh. Oh, it's beautiful. The, is uh, that even a Chinook, or is that just no? I think this is uh, weather. I'm pretty sure this is from the El Nino. Okay. Um, it's you know it's all to do with uh, weather weather reporting. Maybe we could talk about that later. What do you think? Yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Good foreshadowing. Yeah, awesome, right? <laughs> I should be a host. You should be. So, uh, follow up. Yeah, we, uh, we had some stuff to talk about, about the last episode. Yeah. Um, in typical fashion, I was entirely wrong about the the date of the civic holiday. Um, having not listened to the episode in quite a while (laughs) and not being sure exactly when the civic holiday is. You didn't even look. No, uh, I just realized that uh, the holiday I was probably talking about was like Labor Day or something. Probably, but yeah, Civic Holiday is in August. It's the first weekend in August. Yeah. The first Monday in August. But uh, I think I was referencing like Family Day or something last time. It's very possible. God forbid if someone is marathoning these sometime in the future, just, just tweet at us. They're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> tell us what tell us what in heaven's name I was talking about. Because if I'm being realistic, I'm not going to go back and look. No, no, and I wouldn't expect you to. Yeah. You left yourself this note from the from the past and uh you just don't remember anymore. Yeah, past Nick uh past Nick left this thinking <laughs> that future Nick can deal with this. He's a sucker. You and, might have been uh, talking about Victoria Day too. Victoria Day. No, that's uh, May 2-4. Yeah. I don't know. 24th of May. seems most likely. The 24th of May is the Queen's holiday, and if you don't give us a holiday, we'll all run away. Yeah. Except it's almost never on the actual 24th. Well, no, they give you a long weekend because the Queen. Yeah. Nothing to follow up the Queen, just the Queen. Just the Queen. Yeah. But yeah, Civic Holiday is, is the first Monday in August. Okay. That might have been what I was talking about. I'm I'm sure it is. Yeah. There's just no context for it. <clears throat> yeah. And family day is in like February. Anyway, 
we also talked about one party Alberta. We did. We got a quick debrief on it. We did. Um, friend of the show and co-host in the Unwind Media Empire, Mike Attrell. Attrell? Yep. Attrell? Both. Either one's fine. So Mike. That's what he would say. <laughs> Mike, yes. uh, Mike said we did okay. And yeah. I am prepared to take his word for it. So th- there's no actual follow-up. It's just we did good. Well, because we said last time that we would keep talking about it. Yeah. If we had gotten it blatantly wrong. And our few, our viewers are as vocal as they are many. So I guess we'll leave we it there. We were right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, if you want a debrief on the One Party Alberta idea, go and watch the last or listen to the last episode about the last 20 minutes or so we get into it. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. And last item of follow up, the beer store, the beer store in Ontario has changed some rules for small breweries. And they have, I'm pretty excited. Are you? I, I actually am. Was it, uh, uh, one of us posted this so long ago. I think it was probably me, but it, it was after a discussion between the two of us. Yeah. I think it had something to do with, uh, listing prices, didn't it? Yeah. 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 And the ownership of, of the beer store itself, the, yeah. the board of directors. Oh yes. They're, that's right. They're giving seats to smaller breweries on the board of directors. Yep. However, (laughs) still not, you know, a real power position. No. Just kind of like, I mean, obviously they pay attention to the news. Obviously they realize that everyone is upset with them. And I, I don't know. I think this is less about real change and more about saving face, but that is entirely my opinion. No, I think that's a fair opinion. Um, there was a story today. I believe it was in the Ottawa citizen, but I can't find it right now. Um, but it was a poll that was taken about the beer store and talking, trying to find out if people were actually aware of who owns the beer store. And apparently people overwhelmingly thought that it was owned by Canadian breweries. And, they were overwhelmingly upset when they were told that what <laughs> what is actually the case. Yeah, uh, yeah. That there's an international conglomerate that owns it. Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Uh, but yeah, so now it, it used to be, I don't even know what it used to be, but now anyways, there are five seats on the board of directors that are taken up by InBev. There are five with Molson Coors, and then there are two from Sapporo. And the remaining three seats because there's 15 in total will go to small craft breweries. They'll be able to vie for those seats. I, t- I like to think of it as kind of the security council of the Alberta beer or the Ontario beer. Uh, Wait, so system. So five Molson cores, five InBev, two Sapporo. Yeah. Those comprising the, I guess founders or whatever of yeah. uh, brewers retail and another Sapporo sized portion for, I guess everyone else. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, not even, like, I guess tiebreaker size. Yeah, I, I mean, I get, no, I don't even think, it's not even tiebreaker size. It's it's enough that if the two big guys want their way, they're going to get it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, not a power position, but could be a tiebreaker, sure. maybe. Not yeah. not really, because there can still be ties. I guess they could vote independently? I don't know. Yeah. There, so... The the poll I have here, the the findings are that forty five percent of Ontario thought that the government owns the beer store. Ten percent correctly uh, knew that it was owned by multinational corporations, and eleven other eleven percent said that it was probably privately owned, uh, which they argue is still a correct answer. And sixty eight percent of the polls respondents disapprove of that situation, the the true situation. Yeah. Ooh, and 70% of respondents don't think the beer store's proposal goes far enough, which is interesting because the beers, the beer store did a poll as well, and they found the opposite. They thought that it was good. Really? Yeah. A company they, did oh, its own polling, uh, and they heard you know what, what they, they wanted to hear? That's crazy. You've heard about polls and the differences in how you, how, what results you get based on the wording of the question, right? Yeah. So the beer store said... Um, are you happy that <laughs> are you happy that craft breweries will be getting seats on our board? To uh, which they said yes. Yeah. And the poll done by this Main Street group uh told them how many seats they'd be getting and then they went the other way. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So um that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um this isn't follow up, but this is a technical note. I just changed over to the proper microphone. So look forward to that in the editing process, Rob. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, that shouldn't be the end of the world if it's like three seconds, but we'll, uh, <laughs> I'll deal with that. No, I changed the default. It's, yeah, having fun. Yeah. So I suppose we'll move on to our first actual talking point. Great. Rob, do you just just sit down? You're sitting. Okay. Just be mindful. Do you Hold feel? Hold on. Whoa, whoa, wait. I'm not mindful yet. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Hit me. Do you? What do you feel? Do you feel any like spinning? Any vertigo? A little bit. Should Could, I open my eyes? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. A little bit. Why? What's going on? That might be the feeling of our economy spinning out of control and going down. Oh, but. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The gas prices are going down. Like it's getting cheaper to buy gas. Isn't that a good thing? Well, Rob, you see, the thing about that is, uh, oil and gas constitutes a non-trivial fraction of the entire Canadian economy. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so decreased oil revenues means decreased funding revenue or decreased Government revenue. Government revenue, yeah. Less money uh, being injected into the economy. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's how that's going. So uh, are there any other effects of this? Well, uh, the Bank of Canada certainly thinks there will be. Because they have dropped their overnight lending rate. This is in response to the dropping oil prices. And I believe further... Uh, 
I want to say it was RBC is the first chartered bank to have dropped its prime lending rate. Interesting. Or its lending rate based on prime, which is something else I'm not entirely sure. I'm so sorry. The prime rate is 3%. Okay. And that hasn't that hasn't changed in years. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I know cuz I'm paying a loan that's based on it. So Okay. I believe <laughs> yeah. RBC dropped its uh lending rate. Okay. Something like that. So this is an honest question. Do you actually know why they would drop interest rates? Uh, they're trying to get people to invest. They're trying to make it less risky to borrow money to stimulate the economy. Yeah, that's part of it. The other part is like if you're just keeping your money in a bank and getting a good interest rate on it, you're not probably likely to spend it. But if your interest rate is lower, you'll probably go, oh, well, I'll just go out and spend it, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, the uh, and this is interesting. Because the governing Tories have been saying that, uh, well, they've been saying a few things. When they're defending pipelines, they say that oil is key to the economy. And now when they're, def- when they're uh, talking about the economy potentially going down the drain when oil drops, they're going, ah, no, it's, it's probably fine. It's okay. That's interesting. I don't know if I like that. Well, that was, I believe that point was raised by Evan Solomon when he was grilling a Tory, but, uh, not literally, but, (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So this is one of those times and it's, it seems to happen with a fair regularity that the governing conservatives will say something. And then an organization which concerns itself with facts will say something else. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're like, no, no, we're probably going to be okay. Don't worry about it. And then the Bank of Canada is like, well, we are dropping interest rates because it's going to get real bad. Not really bad, but the, the situation, the outlook is not sunshine and rainbows at this juncture. Right. And it's tough for i think most people to understand this i've been seeing a lot i i uh as we've talked about i think last week on future chat um i do go on reddit quite a bit hold on now future chat is that something that people could find in the unwind media empire it is if you go to unwindmedia.com which is more than likely where you are if you're watching this or listening to it um you can just click over because future chat will be right there on the right hand bar. Oh, awesome. That's so convenient. <laughs> it's so weird that that would come up. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, anyway. So I've been seeing on Reddit. There's a, the personal finance subreddit. There are people freaking out because either they work in Canada and are getting paid in us dollars just based on what they're doing or vice versa. They're living in the U S but getting paid in Canadian Ooh, and just that'd suck for them. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into because if our dollar goes down, it's our dollar going down in relation to other currencies. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing pretty well the last, 
five years or so. We, we There was a period there for a bit where we were actually uh, above the American dollar, but now we're back down to 80 cents, which is well, which is a pretty... Tom Mulcair actually... He said we have Dutch disease, and I didn't know what that was, so I tried to look it up. Apparently, Does that in, have anything to do with tulips? You'd assume so, but no. Um, okay. It has to do with... Uh, I guess there's an economic situation in which one section of the Netherlands produces a lot of tulips. Uh, It's oil. It's oil, not tulips. (laughs) And the rest doesn't. So what, what you would normally suppose would happen is if the economy starts going in the tank, the dollar will drop. But then when you buy something in Canada, you have to use Canadian currency. And that affects you know the relative value of the currency so in this he what he's saying was happening was our economy was kind of in the tank but because we were riding so high on oil the dollar was staying high because people were using canadian dollars to buy canadian oil and so the manufacturing sector which was suffering in the east they couldn't move product because you know, the dollar value is so high because they would very much like to boost their exports to make some more money. Yeah. And so I believe it's Ontario anyway, right now, the manufacturing sector is adding jobs because we are under 80 cents us right now. Yeah. And, And I remember in Belleville anyway, where there were a lot of, uh, manufacturing plants, um, People were really, really excited when the dollar was down, what was it, like 64 cents at one point? Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah, they were they were doing great business at that point. Hmm. But, uh, yeah. So overall, it's not great, but there are still pockets that are going to be doing well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's. Part of the interesting thing about living in a federation as large as ours, it's a very diverse place with diverse industry. And so some people are going to benefit, some people are not. And the great thing is we pull together and help the regions that aren't doing so well. I mean, we technically do in that there are places like Alberta. I was going to say in that there are there is a federal equalization program but i would argue that it's not necessarily making the provinces equal and not not that it should but i don't i don't think that it does it helps um well it's it's more based off like public services and things like that as far as i understand it yeah it's ensuring that you know if your province experiences hard times you're you don't lose like public health care and stuff like that right yeah yeah so yeah um the other the other thing about that uh is if things get really bad do we inject stimulus money and I'm pretty sure I'm not a hundred percent certain on this, but I'm pretty sure they suggested that income splitting could be a viable method of stimulus. 
And is that, do you think that's enough? Like, first of all, I guess, what is income splitting? I think people have probably heard that term in the last couple months. Well, if they head over to Vodka and Equations, my blog, they can read all about my position on the matter. But income splitting is if you and your partner make a different amount of money, you are probably in two different tax brackets. Mm-hmm. And so what income splitting allows you to do is transfer some of that money over. It's capped to like, I guess, 20000 or so. But that can take you out of the t- like a higher income tax rate such that you as a family unit are paying less tax money overall, meaning there's more money in your pocket. I assume there's a, I mean, if the, if the maximum you can, you can split is 20,000, the maximum tax benefit any individual family could gain from that is significantly less than $20,000. Well, yeah. And the other large criticism of income splitting is that it disproportionately benefits, uh, the wealthier among us, like yeah. the ideal situation for income splitting in terms of saving as much money as possible comes when you have one person in the top income bracket and like a stay at home partner or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Granted it's capped, so you can't take full advantage of it, but you know, or I think the benefits are capped at 20,000 or something like that. But if you and your partner are both making minimum wage, trying to make ends meet, probably not helping you much. Sure. And that gets into a whole different area of economic theory. But I guess the other thing is that in the Great Recession of 2008, uh, they recommended like Keynesian spending, classic Keynesian stimulus in which you invest in public infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And when you invest in public infra- infrastructure, you're injecting a lot of money into the economy. And the wor- like this is why Keynes said, do it this way. The worst case scenario is that the stimulus doesn't work. But if the stimulus doesn't work, you still have all the public infrastructure that you needed or you would have needed anyway. Sure. Yeah. And Canada, I believe we're coming up to a bad time for public infrastructure. Like it's they there was a construction boom, I guess, 50 years ago or something like that. Okay. And a lot of it is coming due and we are just not ready for that right now. Interesting. So we have a lot of debt from that time. Kind of sort of debt like do you, is it debt or is it coming like the fact that it needs replacing now? It's going to start need needing replacing. Okay. And that has been a discussion topic at the federal government level. But yeah, interesting stuff. And I mean, the, the uh, odd part about that is that, you know, the Tories were all about public infrastructure spending in the Great Recession. But now they're going, well, income splitting will probably be enough. It is a large expenditure. Like it, it costs in the billions to implement this income splitting strategy, but it depends on whether or not that money is actually going to get into the economy or just get spent on things or, right. or get saved rather. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, 
it seems to me that in rough economic climates, people would be more likely to save. Yeah, that's yeah, like that's that's known as the paradox of thrift in that yeah. you're in uncertain times. Also wrote a blog topic on that. Read my blog. <laughs> um, in uncertain economic times, people are reluctant to spend money because they want to have some sort of monetary reserve. And companies do exactly the same thing. But the problem is that when nobody spends money because everyone's afraid, no money is changing hands and the economy is just going to kind of peter out. Yeah. So everyone acting in what they perceive to be their own best interest just screws everyone over in the long run. Uh, And I guess that's why it's a paradox. Yes. Because it does happen and yet the economy does get going again. Like it doesn't, has there been any major economy that just stopped? Like something has to happen no matter how big the, like even the depression in the late twenties, like it rebounded. Yeah. And man, I, uh, or late thirties was the dirty thirties. Well, no, I mean the, the collapse was in the late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, listened to a great podcast on that recently npr's planet money did uh a i bet two-part episode words (laughs) they did two episodes on the gold standard and economists today widely credit the abandonment of the gold standard as uh the turning point in the great depression Hmm. yeah interesting we can talk about that too later, like the fact that our dollar is dropping. That's a good topping talking point. One moment. Yeah. I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna edit this document here. You talk for a second. <laughs> uh that that is putting me on the spot very hard. Um I guess from my perspective, I'm trying to I'm trying to like I, I haven't been an adult really in the in a time where there were there was financial hardship like in the recession or um or any real like I, the last time in the, in 2008 I was still in school so I was on student loans and uh, so also, for me it was more uh, I remember that happening and just a lot of restaurants dropped prices because they wanted to get people in the door and for someone who is just living on student loans anyway man that was great did, did restaurants actually drop prices? I thought that was when they started implementing things like $5 footlongs and the value menu oh, at McDonald's. Oh, that, okay. That kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. McDoubles were born. Oh. Oh. That's a key part of my life right there. <laughs> yeah. You remember in back in 2006 when we started university and like you could go to a restaurant, a pub and get like a hamburger and fries for eight or nine dollars and now it's like 15 yeah good times (laughs) for those of the those of you on the audio podcast i'm looking wistfully into the distance i think they can hear that okay they can they can hear (laughs) where i'm looking yeah i know i could (laughs) (laughs) well i'm glad yeah but so so what's our final verdict on the on the economy do you think that 
that they should do other stimulus than income splitting or is that I, be enough is that not going to matter i will just go ahead and put my colors on my sleeve I, I don't think income splitting is going to work especially as a stimulus mass method i don't really think they should be doing income splitting you can read about why on my blog uh but i mean even even jim flaherty the now deceased finance minister former former finance minister yeah. because he is deceased uh he was he was uh key in designing the system but literally towards the end of his life he did a press conference in which he said listen this is going to cost a lot of money and it's not necessarily benefiting the people we need to be helping. And I'm not sure we should be doing this was basically the long and short of what he said. And I mean, in a party as whipped as the conservatives are right now, or the conservative party is right now, that's mm-hmm. a pretty bold statement. Yeah. And I I don't even know like if we do do stim if we do have another round of stimulus I think it should be based on infrastructure and infrastructure and research and development. Yeah, I mean we've talked before about how the Canadian government's well the Harper government's response to scientific research and basic research and development has kind of caused the research community to, to revolt to avoid stagnating completely. Yeah. Uh, So to their credit, to their small credit, at least there are a couple of pretty big new initiatives coming out. Um, There's NSERC 2020 is a program that they're they've, that NSERC has put forward uh, as a sort of vision for the future of scientific funding in Canada. And there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of things to look forward to over the next five years. Uh, there, the government of Canada recently announced a strategy for science and technology innovation, which is, I think, again, we've talked about this before. It, there's a big focus on things like involving colleges in this research and involving businesses as well. There's a, there is incentive to try to make money off, off of research eventually, Mm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing but i think it's a it's a misguided goal of research the research shouldn't have a goal of making money it should have research it should have a goal of bettering the world in some way yeah and And, i mean we i believe in that future chat chat episode we also did talk about the fact that if you spend a lot of money on basic research and development you can make an awful lot of money off of that in the long run yeah absolutely and so I, I'm looking forward to some of the changes coming through. There's, uh, they recently announced the Canada First Excellence Research Fund, and so that's that is a lot of money going towards Canadian research, like in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Oh, nice. Uh, eventually, by by 2020, it's supposed to hit. I think it hits 200 million a year. Hmm. Uh, but it's yeah, so it ramps up. But um, I'm really looking forward to the the increases that sort of getting back to where Canadian researchers would like the levels to be. I 
people always say, oh, the government's cutting funding for scientists, pure scientists. Well, of course, pure scientists are going to hate that because they're losing their jobs. But they they fail to realize that these researchers aren't aren't sitting there curmudgeonly holding on to this money. They're spending it on equipment. They're spending it on research. They're they're doing things that they love that require investment. Yeah. They're not they're not personally gaining a ton from doing this research. They're just no, they work hard. They have their salary and that's their salary. Yeah. But everything else that comes in is research funding. Like I don't even think they can access it if they want to. They just have to spend it. They can spend it on stuff on things like <laughs> researchers like grad students and yeah yeah but i mean and so in that sense they're kind of they're able to put money into people like make people wealthier than they would be but i would argue again that's a good thing because our i think our some of our universities are doing really really well in the in the research community but some of them have been falling as well in the rankings and so having people especially people like grad students and PhDs uh, and postdocs, I mean, having them getting hands-on experience in a lab can only be a good thing. Yeah. Well, when you have skilled workers in your workforce, that's probably a good thing. And that's part of why the NRC is great in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Even at its most base level, developing workers for a better workforce for tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. This could potentially be a nice segue. Where do you want to go with this? I, uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing about the economy and, uh, I've talked about basic income before. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't in, in all the months, I guess I, cause I haven't, I, I maybe vaguely heard about basic income, but since I really started looking at it, I haven't seen a lot of downsides to the pro- the proposal of giving every citizen in Canada a certain basic level of income, giving them money. And Other taxing- than the fact that it will be so expensive. It will be, it, it's an expensive proposition if you think about keeping everything else in the economy the exact same. Yeah. But uh, you, well, you would tax businesses more and you'd be able to tax people at a higher rate because they're getting money from the government for nothing. Yeah. So it would take a restructuring of what we sort of think of as ideal, but it would, it would take the burden off of poor people to have to help themselves with very little or no resources. Actually, the, uh, the, the government could completely cut its employment insurance section and all those costs it has because you would just do it through the income tax system yeah i mean there's people they've done so many studies about uh homelessness about uh the medical costs associated with yeah healthcare was huge when i read about it like they were saying that when you work in a hospital a lot of what you see is a consequence of poverty Mm -hmm. and if people aren't poor they just tend to be healthier. Yeah. So even if you don't go all, cause that is a very basic income is a pretty socialist idea. There are some Scandinavian countries and countries in uh, 
Central Europe that are considering this. I think Switzerland has or are taking a referendum within the next year or two on whether to give basic income to people, mm-hmm. which would end up, I think they were saying it was about $40,000 a year, American dollars equivalent okay. per year to everyone. And that, it just, I mean, it's it it's egalitarian in such a profound way because it doesn't stop people who are making money. It doesn't stop them from making money. It just evens the playing field a bit. People have, there's a there was a segment on the daily show about a month ago about um salt lake city's program to eradicate homelessness and so what they did is they built a bunch of apartments and just gave homeless people homes and they're doing that in calgary in in a widespread way or is it like a pilot project i'm not sure the exact scope of it but it's it's just down uh 10th here is the first mm-hmm. the first place for it 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 it's such a good program like salt lake city can now trumpet we do not have any homeless people because the only thing that makes people homeless is not having a home and they give these people homes yeah. and they've been saying that based on the money they they used to spend on shelters and food and medical costs again are a huge part of this mm-hmm. based on the money that they saved from not having to deal with all of that no matter what happens, even if people come to Salt Lake who are homeless elsewhere, even if they come, the program will still be able to save money hmm. because it like it, it is good for a city to grow. If people come to the city and get a home, even if it's just a very basic apartment, they can start contributing to that society. Yeah. And like the big They're, thing, they've, the big thing there was like, shocker people don't actually like being homeless no no and if you give people and i mean mental illness is obviously a factor but absolutely with most people if you give them a home like even a place to put their clothes until tomorrow they usually get a job because they like people want things to do during the day and that was another factor with basic income like the jobless or the uh, people that did not get a job was not really significant because you know if you just sit home all day you get bored and you want to do something yeah and and these like this is it has to be a citywide initiative or a, whatever region you do it in initiative because if people if 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 employers are aware that there are a bunch of people coming into the workforce that doesn't mean nothing that all of these people are going to need stuff. They're going to need a, they're going to need money to spend and they're going to need stuff to spend it on. So the, the feedback cycle is only positive. Yeah. I, I've yet to see any negative results stemming from anybody doing an experiment like this. And the studies that have been done and the pilot projects that have been done have been overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. But I, Basic income is an extension of that idea. Not only like I, I love the idea of giving people housing, for instance. I love the idea of giving people tangible things to better themselves because th- there are some people, there's a subset of any society, any culture that doesn't necessarily know what they need to, to, th- to thrive. And so if you give someone a home as opposed to the money to go rent an apartment, yeah, there, you can't really mooch off of that system. 
Mm-hmm. You can't, you're not going to stay homeless if you have a home to go to. Like you're not going to Airbnb it and live on the street. You're going <laughs> to live in that home and you're going to better yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's all I got on that. You have, cool. a, you have a segue now? <laughs> Can you segue from that? Maybe we'll try. Okay. <laughs> so, man, let's just keep talking. Do you know why the uh, oil pr- oil prices dropped so badly? Uh, yes, has to, something to do with OPEC, I believe. Yeah, OPEC. Yeah. Um, I've heard a couple reasons why they might have dropped prices, but OPEC is the organization of petroleum exporting countries. They effectively control the price of oil because they are like Saudi Arabia is involved and they're the biggest producer of oil. Yeah. Um, but they effectively control the price based on the supply they're willing to put out. Yep. And there have been a couple factors that I've heard. One was from NPR's planet money uh, saying that one, maybe the members aren't getting along so well. And that's causing a lack of cohesion in OPEC. Okay. And another factor is that, uh, like the small players, like, no, no, there's, there's one in South America. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. They would like the price of oil to stay high forever because they have limited oil reserves and they would make, like to make as much money as possible off of that. Sure. That makes completely logical sense. Yes, and it makes logical sense for everyone. However, if you are a big player like the Saudis and you see that oil oil prices are really high and the effect of that is fracking in the United States, which has made the United States a net energy exporter. But the only reason that they frack, because it's it's comparatively, it's a very intense process. Or intensive process. And the only reason they can do that is that the price of energy is high. So if yep. you're the Saudis, you say, hey, maybe we'll just cut our opponent or our competition off at the knees and drop the price of oil by like, what has it gone down now? 50 bucks a barrel or something like that? That sounds about right. Yeah, it's I don't think it's even bottomed out yet. I think it's still it, it's, Yeah, I think it's the, still falling. The prices here, at least in Ontario, have somewhat stabilized at around 80 or 90 cents but yeah that sounds a bit right yeah but uh so that's one reason the next reason i heard was uh if this were legal i would say it's hearsay (laughs) but apparently it could be partially to do with the sanctions on russia and maybe the middle east is upset with russia's actions and Russia makes an awful lot of its money from natural gas and some oil, I think. They sell natural gas to the rest of Europe anyway. Okay. And like Russia is suffering from this. That much is true. But if they were upset with Russia, good way to hit them would be with energy prices. Right. And... uh So while energy prices are low, there are people in Canada who are calling for a carbon tax because they're saying, you know, energy prices have come way down. People are going to be basic economics would suggest that people are going to be buying a lot more of this product 
But carbon dioxide is a thing. CO2 emissions are contributing to the greenhouse effect and climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So Harper has said that regulating the industry would be quote unquote crazy right now because they're being hit kind of hard here. Right. Like there's a lot of stories in Alberta about uh, oil companies cutting jobs right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the same time, Ontario is already looking at implementing a carbon tax. So for starters, what are your, what are your thoughts just off the top? So uh, the concept of carbon tax, it seems misguided at best. It seems like people trying to come up with the best of like trying to please everyone. But in reality, the people who are sort of against the notion of anthropogenic climate change, that we're actually doing it, it doesn't please them. I mean, it kind of placates them, but it doesn't please them. And big business doesn't want to have to deal with a carbon tax. So it's not really for anyone. Nobody is really happy with the way it's been proposed. Uh, okay. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but Australia had a carbon tax. They tried it out for a, a year or two. Interesting. And just recently stopped doing it. Okay. Um, there, there was word that it's I, what I've heard since is that it worked. It w- it reduced emissions while it was instituted, but politically it's pretty bad. It, it looks bad. And uh, well, <laughs> in, in other situations like gun control, Australia has been kind of a bastion of amazingness uh, in, in, in the fact that the people, the politicians that enacted the gun control laws that Australia currently has are no longer in politics because they were run out of the run out of office because they did something unpopular, but the crime rate or the gun rate, the gun uh, what do you even call it? The gun incident rate has fallen off a cliff since they enacted those laws. So it, for for them, it was worth it to put those laws in place, even if it was unpopular politically. And so the carbon tax thing, I, I think Australia is kind of moving towards more of the American model of politics, which is that people will do anything it takes to stay in office. And so if a carbon tax is unpopular, even if it's working, you can spin it to say, oh, for whatever reason, it, we're not going to do it anymore. Well, my, my counter to that would be that British Columbia had a harmonized sales tax system for like a year, maybe. And they got rid of that. Like, admittedly. When you harmonize a sales tax, that means that some things are taxed that did not used to be. Yeah. But other than that, apparently it's just a horrendous net benefit because you don't have to file taxes separately. So it effectively halves the labor for accounting. Sure. When it comes to taxation. But by gum... People see a different tax on their receipt and God, they just see red over it. Yeah. People don't like taxes. 
I knew a lot of people who like they were talking about the HST and I said it is just the PST plus the GST. You're not really paying any more than you were before. Well, I hate it, and it starts with H, and I hate that sales tax. It's the hateable (laughs) sales tax, HST. Gosh darn kids on my lawn. Talk to a lot of old people, don't you? (laughs) That must be it. But I don't know. Like, admittedly, there were some... I can't think of examples right now, but I seem to recall there were things that were taxed that I felt should not have been taxed. Okay. Uh, But I digress. Like... The least offensive examples of which is newspapers. I think newspapers should not be taxed because overall they're probably a good thing for people to have. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to go the other way on that because you know. internet. <laughs> I think that if you're going to have a carbon tax and you're also going to print newspapers, it doesn't really matter if you're charging tax for them because that's uh, that's not a great policy. In a place where the internet exists, so, I think there should. So I'm going to leave this one because we could just go way down the rabbit hole on this. Of course we could. <laughs> yeah. Um, For the yeah, record, I'm against Not it. going down the the rabbit hole. Um, Fair enough. I am pro newspaper. Well, I'm pro newspaper too. I'm just uh, against printing stuff. <laughs> Details. Okay. Yeah. God, what was I even talking about? A oh, carbon tax. You're talking about carbon tax. Yeah. Okay. Uh- <laughs> oh, we're off the rails. I don't even know that I really answered your question about carbon tax. Oh yeah. In Canada. Aussies got chased out of office, but it seems to have worked. You're not sure it, who it's it, pleasing. It did work, but now they're back to not having it. So it's yeah. going to go away again. So the people who really like a carbon tax are economists. Yeah, of course. Because, of course, yes. They're the ones proposing it. (laughs) Well, yeah. But I mean, the idea being that if you want to curb consumption, you can do it through taxation. Yeah. Taxation curbs consumption. Yep. But so Ontario is looking at implementing one, a carbon tax or perhaps cap and trade. But that's mostly on, I guess, industries on the whole. Yeah. So you cap emissions, but then you have a certain amount of credits. It allows you to emit a certain amount. And they just cut off the supply after a while. So people trade their credits for money. Right. And it worked really well for uh, stopping chlorofluorocarbons. Stopping them completely now. And uh, I think sulfur emissions. Okay. It might have been sulfur emissions, actually. Acid rain. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple models of a carbon tax in Canada right now. And they are both in the West. Uh, British Columbia's, I... I've actually read several articles absolutely praising British Columbia's carbon tax because they implement a zero sum model that has been proposed by other economists that I've heard about and liked independently of knowing that BC implements this system. 
So apparently what British Columbia does is they put a price on carbon fuel, like uh, for cars and stuff like that. This is separate from gas tax. Mm, I think so. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll go or through it's an, it. It's another aspect of, <clears throat> yeah. of gas tax. Okay. So they have an additional price on carbon and people pay it when they go to the pumps. Uh, it might not apply to airline fuel, but et cetera, et cetera. Okay. What they do at the end of it, they take all the money that they have collected from the carbon tax and they distribute it to the tax base. So say you are like the people who would benefit most would be city dwellers who probably don't spend that much on fuel. Okay. Um, they get the average amount and will probably come out ahead because they haven't spent very much. On the other hand, uh, people in rural areas might be hit harder because they tend to drive a lot more. They travel by car more, end up paying more carbon tax, get less back. So they're not as far ahead. But the idea being that for the average citizen, or for the average citizen, it is a zero sum model. So you pay a certain amount in, you get that amount back, but it, it just comes off your income taxes. Okay. So, the idea there is that you haven't put a horrendous tax burden on the citizenry, but you've still increased the initial out-of-pocket expense for it, which tends to curb consumption. And so the British Columbian economy apparently did not feel a horrendous hit from the carbon tax. Like, I guess you have to actually like go through the numbers and isolate for different influences, but it does not appear to have had a horrendous effect on the economy. Interesting. Yeah. I'm really sad that that system works. Are you? Because it's from what you've said, it's effectively the same. Like there's no, there's no benefit, but it curbs that you get the money later. Like no, people, no, no, I mean, it does less but, gas, which is the like the, that is the objective is that people will buy less gas and they gradually ramp up this gas tax until it. Yeah. Yeah. Becomes pretty expensive to buy gas. Yeah. Well, just like they've done with cigarettes, for instance. Yeah. Something like that. They're like 90 percent tax right now, mm-hmm. which is just good. So now compare and contrast with the other province that has a gas tax. Surprisingly, Alberta. Um, Alberta has a model. I don't know exactly how much either of these provinces skim off, but Alberta's model takes the money from the carbon tax, does not give it back, but Hmm. they invest it in a clean energy technology fund. So they're actually or actively funding uh, research into, I guess, renewable fuels and stuff like that, renewable and sustainable. Okay. And so they're saying, yeah, we're riding high on oil right now, but you know, we gotta we gotta be ready for the next step. So, I mean, you and I are huge fans of R and D spending. Read my blog. That we are. <laughs> and uh, yeah. There's also the issue of how much 
of a tax do you actually need to curb consumption? Yeah. And I think the highest figure I've seen is 40 cents. Like to really buckle down on it, it's got to be 40 cents a liter. Okay. But I've also, I feel like I've heard economists say it, it can be as low as six or something like that. And you will have a dramatic effect. So this, this carbon tax you're talking about is, is just the consumer aspect when it comes yeah. to gas at the pump. There's no, uh, this, what you're specifically talking about right now has nothing to do with industry using, um, I mean, carbon non-neutral processes. Um, I believe if they are buying oil, they have to pay for it or okay. natural gas or something like that. I think they have to pay a tax for it, but I'm not sure. Okay. Well, they would, I guess ideally they would pay the same amount. Right. Cause I mean, it, in that instance, it seems like your the government's taxing multiple times for the same oil, the same gas, the same petroleum product. If, if the, company or the the corporation that is refining this oil is paying a tax on it and then the consumer is paying a tax on it as well it's the same um i'm not sure how much the extraction industries actually pay they do pay the the amount i know they pay for a fact is a fee that goes to ne- to the national energy board to the regulator Okay. Because in Canada, we feel that allowing industries to regulate themselves is probably a bad idea when public safety is at stake. Yeah, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what or how much else they pay into anything. Interesting. Certainly, I think they would pay income taxes or corporate taxes. Right. Which increases the more yeah, they sell. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? What? Because those are two models that I think have so much potential. Yeah. So I I like the idea of a carbon tax. I'm not I'm not sure. Like I personally wouldn't have much to unless the carbon tax was on like the gas we use to to uh, heat our home. I don't know that it would do much. I don't have a car, so I'm assuming there wouldn't be any gas or carbon tax built into public transit cost because that's the whole model of public transit is that it is better for the environment. I'm not sure. Although if they increase the prices of buses, maybe LRT would go in, which would be awesome. I'm, I'm really excited because we're getting an LRT. They just announced today. um, Jim Watson, our fine mayor just announced, or they unveiled, I guess the, what the train cars are going to look like. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like different than they already do. Yeah. They're a nice shiny new model. They fit oh. 300 people per car and Ooh. there's a whole bunch of stats. They, and I, there was an article about it where there's sort of the pictures and gave a bit of the story, all the details of what the train, like apparently they go hundred kilometers an hour at top speed. Um, through the city, the top speed of the train is hundred kilometers. Oh, an hour. okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But they are built, or no, sorry, they're designed 
I guess they're kind of built in uh, in Europe. People are saying we have we have places like we have companies like Bombardier here. That, why wouldn't you get the trains from them? Um, so the pieces come from Europe, and then we build them here. Okay. Um, but uh, I I think it's great. I I will use light rail when it when it opens and actually goes somewhere useful in Ottawa. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I know. I actually watched a uh, national film board video because that's an app on our smart tv (laughs) um it was on transportation in developing countries and i think it was from the 80s or something like that and it talked about how places were moving away from light rail because it's not dynamic and able to respond to the needs of a city but i mean the obvious counter to that is that lrt can shape the development of a city right like and it does i mean if you go i mean it's not light rail but lee's station is a a big transit stop in ottawa yeah and it's around lee's station that a bunch of high-rises have gone up yeah and even well even herdman there's high-rises there as well yeah and out it's out going west on the transit way it's like outside of downtown yeah i always confuse it with billings uh Breton flats maybe sure Maybe, but anyway. Oh yeah, there are, there are some in LeBreton Flats as well. LeBreton Flats, high rises near a yeah. transit station because that just happens. Yeah. So I mean, man, you build more LRT. It's just, I feel as though it shapes growth and it's so efficient and uses electricity, so is just ridiculously, ridiculously efficient. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that is sort of an interesting point like if you're talking about the inflexibility of uh lrt at responding to the needs of a city right now ottawa's current system is transit way Mm -hmm. basically a road just for buses so that's also inflexible in the same sense (laughs) (laughs) yeah basically if you build a bus road then it's going to be there for a while Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah lrt is better in my environment in my view if you can shut that down and replace it with an lrt that's net positive long and short come on people from 30 years ago yeah why can't you know what i know (laughs) uh that reminds me of uh back in the 70s when people were talking about global cooling yeah well i mean apparently that was a concern it's just (laughs) there wasn't very like there wasn't a lot of widespread scientific support for it yeah 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 like there was a brief period of cooling or something like that there was a brief yeah people there was a brief period and people started freaking out and scientists started studying it and freaking out but then it was wrong they found out it was wrong pretty quickly conspiracy theory someone heard about (laughs) global cooling and was like no this has to stop and just like started warming up the planet could be uh before we move to the next thing okay i feel like we should point out we got a we got an uh some real-time follow-up on our banking uh point we apparently apparently all banks have followed suit in dropping their rates oh nice is there anybody we should thank Uh, we should thank our yeah we should thank our contributor Thanks, Mike. Uh, 
uh, on future chat mike so uh yeah he says they've all dropped prime by uh 15 i guess it's 0.15 percent hmm okay yeah so thank you for that he also says it's pronounced a trell not a trell but so i i guess i was wrong because i thought like to me it doesn't matter i go i'm fine with both but uh trell he would prefer a trell Artrell. No worries, Mike. Mike Artrell. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, what what are we done with carbon tax for now? I think so. Okay. Do we at least would you go for ca- carbon tax over cap and trade? Yes. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. I I'm I have always said, and maybe this is the the socialist in me, but I've always said I'm fine with taxes. If I can live, I don't really need to thrive. Like I don't need to, I don't need excess. I don't need luxury. I just want to have stuff. Well, it's also nice when you pay taxes and you get things like public infrastructure, like roads leading to your house and things like that. But like posts, details, mail. Yeah. Well, I don't know. (laughs) Is mail still a crown corporation or is it arm's length now? I got issues is, with Canada Post. So that's probably the same issue I have with newspapers. <laughs> They're kind of a dying thing. No, I mean like uh, Canada Post just keeps charging more and more. And like their service is just awful. Their well, parcel service to- is okay. But their letter delivery it leaves a lot to be desired in my experience. They have postage paid stamps now. They're getting rid of those. They're going back to a an amounted system? Yeah. What? Okay. Yeah, because too many people were Complain benefiting valid. from permanent postage. <laughs> also, they're, tr- uh, I, they're trying to get rid of, maybe it is a crown corporation, but they were trying to get rid of uh, door-to-door delivery. Well, and they are. And they're saying like, they're everyone's going to move to the you know, neighborhood posted postal boxes. Yeah. And they were like, well, you know, we talked to some older folks and they appreciated the walk every day that they get to go to get the mail. I was like, did you, did you talk to the ones with limited mobility? Cause <laughs> yeah, pretty sure they need the mail too. Yep. No, there, there are good points on either side. Um, we now have, we're in new development that was built like, I mean, I guess it's still technically under construction, but it was finished. Like we moved in a year ago. Um, we have a mailbox that's just down the street hmm. and we still have a mailbox on our house, but the, the delivery comes to the box. I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know what, what system How they would strange. have in place for people with limited mobility. Yeah, like that what would do need they to do? be addressed. Yeah. They might have there there are if I would argue if you have limited mobility depending on the circumstances of that, you would be better off, you'd be better suited to a place like an apartment complex that would have the mail in the building. Like a central mail system potentially, in the building. Potentially, yeah. But I mean, I th- it's a free country. People can do what they need to do. So I, I would lie and say that we'll follow that story, but I'm probably going to forget about it. So my argument 
I guess I, I could probably make arguments on either side, but my argument for that being fine, the, the sort of nice walk to the post box every, every so often is that mail service itself, like that's the reason mail is expensive and there's not very much of it compared to the amount that it costs. So it's reduced work for the postal workers because they only have to go to this box and they don't have to go door to door across an entire country. Well, yes, that is the obvious upside. No, but the so the the result of of doing that or the result of the mail being less is that since we check our mail like once a week and it's still mostly junk mail. Mm. So we don't need to go there every day. You could have if someone did have reduced mobility, I would think if it was reduced to the point that they couldn't get to their mailbox, they would have somebody that would come by and help them and that person could go i don't think i don't think the argument that people with reduced mobility can't can get to their mailbox that's like either a slot in their door or on the front of their house i don't think there are a lot of people for which that is possible but they can't walk or they can't get down the street it's not that much more of a stretch winter mobility winter is the thing Winter is a thing, but I would argue that the the number of people that that would that would be totally fine getting to their mailbox on their house, and the number of people that would sort of get stuck walking is not very many. I don't think yeah, you're but losing a, a vulnerable lot of mo- minority is still deserving of a nation's care. They are, and they. It's not that they, I don't think they would ever be forgotten or like not cared for. It would just, you'd need to make different concession than going back to this old system just for this small minority of people. I'm not saying ignore them. I'm saying come up with a better system than hand delivering just those letters. Yeah, that's fair. So I I would ask if we're finished talking about mail. It wasn't anywhere on the talking points. I'm no, not even sure no. how it happened, but uh, <laughs> moving on. Are we okay with that? Moving on? Yeah, yeah. All right. So about six months ago, Canada went back to Afghanistan. Yes. To fight Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call them. Uh, extremists, we'll call them. Yeah. Six months ago... Uh, Canadian forces were deployed and what was it? They were there to carry out airstrikes and to advise. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure the assertion was that there would be no effectively no combat boots on the ground. So I believe it's been at least twice in the last couple of weeks that Canadian forces have come under fire Yes. And the reason they came under fire was that they were advising. But it seems that they were advising from somewhere in the vicinity of the front lines. Right. They were coming under fire, under direct fire, because they were there. Yeah, they were like not in a tent in the back telling people where to go. They were kind of up at the front. Yeah. So... What do we think? Well, 
for what it's worth, I heard that further to them being under fire, there were there were a couple of instances where Canadian troops returned fire on militants. Oh uh, yeah, well that was the, the yeah. Well, so I not mean, just, we're being shot at. Of course, we're going to shoot not back. Just, it's like, but you shouldn't have been shot at in the first place, right? Why were you in that situation at all? Well, yeah, because I mean that was a critique at the very beginning of the mission. People that opposed the mission said, "No, don't go there. You're just going to end like I think they call it mission creep. You're just yeah, going to yeah, end yeah. up fighting again." In Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, again, and we're going to get pulled into this quagmire again. And people were assured up and down that, no, no, it's just advising. It's just, you know, airstrikes like it's not going to be that bad. But the general trend to this point indicates that it may well, in fact, become that bad again. Well, yeah, it, that's kind of been the implication of, I mean, that's certainly what the enemy is saying. They're saying, watch out, it's going to be that bad again, if not worse. And yeah. so it it's kind of hard to fault well, our not, troops who are I'm not there. Saying that's, I'm not saying that's like uh, ISIL saying that. I'm saying that back home people were saying, no, yeah, this is going to get terrible. Yeah. But it, the worse it gets, the more reason we would have to help. True, yeah. That's why, I mean, unless you want to get paranoid, that's why we're there in the first place, is to help. Yeah, yeah but, and I mean, when they started this, they said there will be a six-month review, which... Yeah. I, when I heard about it, it made me feel a lot better. Because, you know, in six months you can see where you are and what's happening. And admittedly, I don't really know what's going on in that part of the world right now. Yeah. But it doesn't sound as if ISIL has been drilled into the ground by our airstrikes or the drone strikes of our allies. Yeah. And uh, although I've heard some. I've heard mostly good things from that mission overall. It seems like that it's at least working. They're not just going on a sort of unrestrained, unstopped. So I think that they are, they're at least having an impact, even if it's not just completely stopping them. Okay. And I mean, just briefly to clarify, like the reason we're there is that ISIL troops were proving to be pretty brutal in everything they did. Yeah. Like not a uh, sunshine and lollipops kind of sort of crowd. No, not at all. Although, I mean, the Schadenfreude fodder has been out there. Like the teenagers that went over to join ISIS. And then went, I can't charge my iPhone here? Ugh, this is awful. Yeah. I'm sure the irony is lost on them. Or, I don't know, there was, I think there were some teen girls that went over. And I don't know what they expected. Yeah. Like, 
Islamic extremists aren't known for treating women well. Yeah. Yeah. So what do, what do you uh, what do you think is going to happen here? I think I mean if you asked me this 5 or 10 years ago, probably I would say if you asked me 10 years ago, I would say, well, who are you, Nick? Who who are you? How do I know your name's Nick? I have all my memories, but I'm, I'm I won't have mature. met you for another like 5 <laughs> years now. I don't think you have a good conception of how long time is. Um <laughs> So I used to think that you could just like, if you left a war zone that was like, if Canada, for instance, left a war zone in the middle East, there would be little to no implications for any Canadian. Uh, I used to think that it was a thing that like you would get everyone on planes and they would fly away. And the problem for us would be gone. Um, I no longer feel that way. I've, I've been watching this happen. The, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. I've been watching them happen for going on 12 years or 13 years now. Um, it's a long process. I've been working in government for two years now. I know that things take a long time to happen in the military. There are things that can happen really, really quickly, but there it's normally a big event that'll happen. Something like nine 11 will happen. That's huge. And that changes everything profoundly from that day on, but getting from that kind of event back to normal is going to take a really, really long time. And it's not going to be a process where you can do anything where you can, where you can sort of undo things you've done quickly. You build up a lot of things quickly. You send a bunch of troops over very quickly. Getting them back is going to take a very long time. Well, before we move too far onwards, uh, to your point, your initial point that you thought people could just leave and that would be fine. I mean, I don't even remember what I thought on the matter, but I'm a power vacuum is about the worst thing that you can inflict on someone. Yeah. Because it seems as if whenever you have one with maybe some fringe exceptions, what you end up getting is sort of a warlord's type of situation. Yeah. Anyone who had the most power in whatever group will take the power in the larger group. Yeah. Because there's no, there's no head of state that's willing to take over or that Mm -hmm. is in, in a position to take over anytime soon. It is a very, it's a very troubling situation to be in. So, I mean, typically, if it were sort of an insurrection from within in a country, then the head of whatever organization was responsible for that could revolution would take over. Yeah, yeah. But in the case of a third party coming in and stopping this brutal, uh regime there's no i mean it would be wrong for american or canadian officials to take any sort of political control over the country 
you like that's not a way to manage that's not a, a sustainable solution to it well no because we also learned that uh colonialism isn't the greatest thing either right because there's no there's no power structure that isn't corrupt in the country and so setting up a non-corrupt system will take a long time it can be done we've seen examples where formerly non-democratic countries and places have found democracy or have have started to apply it effectively we've also seen examples we're, we're not exactly we're not talking about russia are we because no we're not i mean alleged democracy but i i heard uh india's elections were were fairly well received by the people oh good um, right. whether or not that's actually true, I guess will be something for history to tell, but yeah, I mean, I've also, I've uh, specifically on Russia, I've read, uh, at least one article that suggested that they suspect the vote was rigged. Yeah. Not, not based on any like voter observation or anything like that. But in the fact that the math just didn't work out, like mathematically, it was unlike any fair election that had ever happened or something like that. <laughs> They're like, no, approval ratings just aren't that high. That's not how this works. Right. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. The I don't know if there's a if there is one right political system. The the states has basically effectively a two party system and that doesn't work pretty mm -hmm. obviously there are pretty big flaws with it well and i mean we the have, electoral college is just the worst idea yeah. yeah it 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 could be good for certain things if it were done if it were implemented in a in a way that if it were was, implemented in like a way where you had one vote per district which is yeah basically like a parliamentary democracy <laughs> yes our system in Canada is, I would argue, slightly better with multiple parties. They can make coalitions if they want to. and Well, allegedly. Because, <laughs> oh, that is a... Can we talk about that just briefly? Yeah, go ahead. I have heard so much coalition bashing. And how, like, Oh no, like co coalition, that's like a dirty grr trick. I can't believe that anyone would ever consider it. It's like, like it's to the point where Mulcair and I think Mulcair and Trudeau have both said like, no, no, we would, we would never do such a thing. That's a crazy idea. But it's like, no, that's actually a consequence of a parliamentary democracy yeah. that two parties can form a governing coalition. That's how a parliament works. Yeah. Ugh. The the thought of people working together that have slightly differing <laughs> ideologies it is burns bad. me up it's inside. Just, it's baffling. <laughs> That's like well, having a relationship without fighting. <laughs> it's effectively what happens in a minority parliament because you need support of one other part. When you have a minority, you need support from one other party to get anything done. Yeah. Which effectively makes it a coalition. Yeah, normally. Yeah, exactly. If anything gets done, it's because there was a coalition. Yeah. Even if it wasn't a permanent one, it was it was something. Like a pseudo coalition on that particular vote. Yeah. But uh But no. No. 
coalition government. That's a crazy idea. It could never happen. What a ludicrous idea. Rabble, 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 rabble. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. But uh, so I, I, I guess to conclude that point, I don't know what the best political system is. But I just – the best political system I think would be one that almost doesn't give the people who are in power any power. Because it's the power aspect that corrupts politicians. Would you feel better about like a group of small councils? I have a feeling you're going somewhere with this. I'll just let you go ahead and, okay. and explain to me. So imagine <laughs> – Imagine that, like, I don't think it would work on a riding level, but several ridings got together and just had elections and had a governing council rather than just one leader. And then you formed a group of those councils. Yep. And a council of councils, almost. Mm -hmm. And then you just, you would have maybe a higher level council to just and and there is a word for that oh what is it that council uh it's not an english word oh. but uh they call it a soviet interesting and uh you could you could fund you could found republics on a soviet of sorts and so what what sort of political if, if ideology had, would would that work best with well it depends but if those Soviets tended to be socialist, mm-hmm. you could have a union of Soviet socialist republics. Interesting. What, what do you think, Rob? Is that? Uh... I, I mean, it has a pretty nice ring to it. But is there any is there any language that in which most of those words would start with the same letter? Uh, Russian. Oh, CCCP. really? Oh, interesting. That's that has a really nice ring to it. CCCP. I mean, I mean, they're Cyrillic, but to me, they look like CCCP. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't I that like be this. nifty? <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying basically <laughs> is that politics is broken and there's no good system. I don't know. Like even uh, I think philosophically, um, I forget what course I discussed this in, but. They actually looked at different governing strategies and democracy is actually a perversion of a different slash better sort of system. Yeah. It's, I want to say it's related to a monarchy, but not quite. But yeah, I distinctly remember that and democracy is a perversion of this system. Keep that in mind, guys. Democracy is a perversion of this other better system. I think it had like a monarch at the head to, you know, hand on the tiller kind of thing. Hmm. Because a, a monarch doesn't have to be someone from a royal family, right? Uh, monarch just know. means single leader. I don't know. Like oligarchy is a small group of leaders. Well, an oligarchy, isn't it, isn't an oligarchy like a, aren't they usually rich or something like that? They don't have to be. Okay. I think I'm, 
Is that a plutocracy where you've got a bunch of rich people at the top? Uh, maybe. If anyone yeah. listens to this and knows anything about political anything science, about political science they're at just all. tearing their hair out and just <laughs> screaming at this moment. And to you, I say, I'm so sorry. So sorry. It's okay. Don't worry. Uh, interesting. So, an, so oligarchy literally means a few ruling or commanding. Okay. Um, and so it, again, so politics all comes down to power. And so it says that the people, these oligarchs could be distinguished by royalty, wealth, family ties, education, corporate, religious, or military control. Okay. So it's typically a few prominent families who typically pass their influence from one generation to the next. But inheritance is not a necessary condition. Hmm. They've typically been tyrannical, which makes sense. Um, <laughs> yep, checks okay. out. So uh, apparently Aristotle is the one that pioneered the term as a synonym for ruling by the rich, which is plutocracy. Oh, okay. Um, so I like the idea of... Okay, so monarchy is one, but oligarchy. I like the idea of there. There's in here. What about like an elected education. oligarchy? Sorry. What about like an elected oligarchy? Well, that's that's what I'm thinking. So it says. I mean, literally in the definition, I understand you. I realize you don't have to completely adhere to a, a dictionary definition of something. Like what if? But what if there were like 308 people from across Canada that came? Yeah, together why are you doing this to me? <laughs> to to rule. And then even you could have an oligarchy within the oligarchy. You could, you could have like from like a, a ruling group, they could have a few of themselves and you could call that like a cabinet. Mm -hmm. And I'm having so much fun, Rob. I, I can tell. <laughs> so the, the thing here is that I, I, I've always said this, that people who, and I, I'm sure it's not the first time anyone has said it, but the people who should be in power, like they should have political power, don't want it. The people that should like be influencing politics are ones that want nothing to do with it or nothing to do with the actual power of it. And the leaders you end up getting are people that have traits, characteristics that make them just so impressionable, so corruptible. I think it's... Oh man, I am thinking of Pierre Elliott Trudeau quoting Plato or something like that. And it was kind of to that point. It was, you know, someone really, really badly wants to be the leader. That person shouldn't be a leader or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, so Canada had a, a TV competition called world's or Canada's smartest person or something mm -hmm. like of that nature. Um, I don't, I'm not going to try to say that I'm one of the most one of the most intelligent or smartest people in Canada, but I'm the thought. I, I mean, no offense, but I'm pretty sure that's a safe bet. The, yeah. So the, the thought of going on to a show like that to try to demonstrate that I'm the smartest person doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. Even if, even if there was a slight chance I could find out that I was in fact the smartest person in Canada, I would want nothing to do with a competition where I was, trying to prove to people that I was. Well, it's, if I may bring in another quotation, um, a guy I'm going to school with, he said when he was first starting out, 
um, in carpentry, cabinet making. He said, a guy kind of took him under his wing and said, listen, there will be guys that you see that tell you how great they are. And there will be guys that don't tell you how great they are because they don't have to. Because the wall, the quality of their work speaks to how good they are and they don't have to. Yeah. That kind of thing. I, I like the quote. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Is this like a pat on the back kind of moment? Cause it's like, yeah, we're so smart that like we don't even need to say that we're smart. Cause like, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess outsiders might view it that way. I don't view it that way. Uh, no. Well, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen Canada, the smartest person, Neither have I. Yeah. but I cannot imagine a series of performance tasks, which could truly give you the smartest person in a given population. Right. Especially if it, if you have to enter into such a competition, you're not finding the <laughs> smartest person. You're finding the smartest person that entered. Touche. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, a tr- like if it's based on trivia and stuff like that, a particularly well-trained parrot could probably do pretty well in such a competition. Yeah. I assume it's not just literal intelligence, like answering trivia questions. It would probably. Well, that's not even intelligence. That's just remembering things. Yeah. 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 Exactly. If that was the measure of, of smartness, I would argue that's a very, that it's not even accomplishing what you're setting out to try to do and find the smartest person. Hmm. Find the person that can regurgitate the most facts. (laughs) Yeah. I never was good at that. I could never regurgitate facts on command, like any fact. I could remember things that I found interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I've got the, I've got a similar sort of problem in which I am just a huge fan of useless knowledge. But yeah. that knowledge isn't even useful in trivia competitions because they ask completely different questions. So exactly. it is truly useless <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, and there's so much of it. <laughs> Heads just completely And it's full. also fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so do you feel like these questions we're asking wouldn't it be so much easier if we could just look into the future and like <laughs> I can't not crack up why why what, do you what feel if we could just keep like, doing this like forecast the future yeah uh so I like the idea, but what if we're not good at forecasting the future? Well, I suppose the best thing you could do is, based on observation, construct models and figure out what you think is going to happen based on current events. And based on past events as well, I would assume. Well, current and past, yeah. Yeah. I'm not helping you on this one. (laughs) So Rob wants to talk about weather forecasting. I do. 
Uh, at least I want to talk about it in light of this week's lack of uh, snowpocalypse that was supposed to hit the eastern seaboard. And even in the worst hit places, it was only about half of what the what was forecasted. Um, so as I mentioned at the at the top of the show, we're now getting hit with the snowstorm, the remainder of the snowstorm that hit that slowly moved its way up the eastern seaboard. And people are giving people a giving weathermen a lot of slack for getting this forecast so wrong. Um, and they're also talking to or talking about public officials and their response. If if a weatherman tells you that there are based on our models, there are, is a good chance that we're going to get two and a half feet of snow over the next 12 to 24 hours. You would be well off preparing for that possible outcome, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if I if I completely agree with the what they said was no vehicles on the roads after eleven p.m. that night. Nothing except emergency vehicles to allow the streets to to remain to be cleaned. And oh, so like no par- or parking restrictions? No, complete. There are no vehicles. Non-emergency vehicles allowed at all. They when were was c- this? because they were. Ex- Sorry, when was this? Or did this, this was? Uh, it was in New York. Uh, well, it was. Oh, okay. Sort of that that region, but Bill De Blasio, the mayor of New York, mm-hmm. was one of the guys who was saying, basically, I mean, they they all were, but preparing for the very worst just in case. Yeah. Um, they were expecting, I think it was almost hurricane force winds along with a ton of snow. Ooh. And That's, yeah. Ooh. So it's a it's a bad scenario to potentially get yourself into. But it ended up being pretty much a normal blizzard that happened any other year. So I could pause briefly here mm-hmm. and say could we just start calling networks out for being the network that cried snowpocalypse. I think so. I, how many times have you heard the phrase snowpocalypse since it happened that one year and fizzled and then wasn't really a snowpocalypse every time that it's going to snow like every year now, maybe a couple times. Yeah. Ugh. And what's interesting is that, I don't know. I feel this was snowpocalypse like the first snow I experienced in London, Ontario. Like the first day, I think it dumped about 50 centimeters of snow. Mm-hmm. And in the next couple days, there were 20 more. So like in the whole system, that was like 70 centimeters of snow. Right. That was a lot of shoveling. But I can't recall snow co- snowpocalypse being called before no. that. Because why would you? Because it just kind of happened. Yeah. And it went, whoo, that was a lot of snow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So the whole thing here that I have a problem with is that if forecasts say it's likely that we're going to get a lot of snow, because I'm sure the forecasts for the eastern Boston area in New York did not say we are guaranteeing that there will be this much snow. They were saying the models are predicting a good chance that this much snow will come. Mm-hmm. 
they could probably predict with almost 100% certainty that it is going to snow, but not the, they can't get the amount exactly right. There's, there's just too many variables in our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is huge. That it is. So if they, if they predict, if, it, so I guess their predictions are, are based on percentages and, and possible, all possible outcomes. Probabilities. If they go on their nightly broadcast and say, okay, there's a, we're going to have snow because that's the most likely prediction. That, that's the most likely outcome of, of our predictive models. So there are four possible outcomes. They can say, they can go on the broadcast and say, there's going to be a ton of snow. Let's prepare for it. And then they prepare for it. And then there's lots of snow and they deal with it. Or they can go, there's going to be lots of snow and then nothing happens. Like there's a regular snowstorm, which is what happened in this case this week. Or they could say, listen, there could be a lot of snow, but don't panic. And then nothing happens, which I'm sure happens quite a bit that the forecasters, they sort of under, they set expectations low for the amount of, the amount of sort of inconvenience extreme weather will cause. And they're right. And it's fine. Like they're, and then the other instance would be when they under, uh, on, they set expectations low, and then there's a ton of snow that nobody saw coming, or that the forecast saw coming, but it was a very low percentage. And in which case, people can die, people can sort of get caught in a storm, and and like really, really bad things can happen. That if you don't have time to prepare for a storm, and it's worse than you expect, lives can be lost, damage can be done to property, all that kind of stuff. So. In that sense, meteorologists, I think, have a duty to set expectations high and then sort of be able to wipe their brow and say, who we good thing that bad thing didn't happen. Now let's move on with our lives. Our models are going to get better every time this happens. We'll be able to, to say with more certainty that it is or isn't happening. It reminds me of a story um, in Italy. It was a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a big earthquake. and some group of Italians that were affected by this earthquake sued seismologists. Oh man. I remember hearing about that. Right. Because they didn't predict this earthquake. And so a bunch of damage was done, but a, an earthquake isn't something that you can. I mean, first of all, it's not something you can predict. Second of all, if you could predict it, all you could say is don't build your houses or don't build your civilizations on a fault line. You can't say, oh, there's going to be an earthquake two weeks from now, so you should just move your house off that fault line. <laughs> yeah, like what do you do? Just be sure you're standing outside between yeah. the hours of this and this? It it makes no sense. And there are all kinds of like there's understandings that in places like New Orleans and places like the Netherlands, we are if, every second of every day, even in the New York subway, we're every day fighting off the elements pump either pumping water out actively or building higher and higher dams or or um or ditches or dikes for the water to 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 keep back the water because these places are literally below sea level without constant human intervention these places would fill with water within a couple days yeah i forget where i was going with that particular point but 
it's not on whether people to it's not on whether people to make you aware of any possible bad thing that could happen based on where you're living well i mean seismologists that's a it's a tall order yeah to demand that they predict an earthquake because they study earthquakes so logically but i mean as far as meteorologists are concerned i think that having more knowledge at your disposal is better and i Mm -hmm. think that might have been where you were going with that yeah but i mean it's not their fault that a probabilistic model didn't like didn't right. it wasn't get it right 100 of the time and i think it's right now three day forecasts are as good as our one one day forecasts were like decades ago yeah like they're getting better but mm-hmm. the only thing that's going to make them de- better is more data and yeah. the only thing that can give them more data is time and even then they're you're never going to be able to predict whether like a week out with a hundred percent probability. It's just, I yeah, don't just think that can out. happen. There's too many variables in that time. Cause I'm pretty sure the butterfly effect was, that was based on climate models. Like that was a computer. They just, they did a full simulation and they went back and they changed, they changed one unit cell, like the wind velocity in one unit cell by the least possible amount that it could change. Like, least possible amount it could change in that model and they said you know it's like trivial like a butterfly flapping its wings Mm -hmm. and that simulation ended with a tornado or a hurricane or something like that happening and the only deterministic difference was whatever the least possible yeah this tiny change change was Yeah. yeah so long and short chaotic system it's like I, I would say if you are faced with something that could be very bad, it is the responsibility of a person with that knowledge to communicate it to the public. Yeah. But you can't hold someone who works with a probabilistic model to account when it didn't happen exactly as a probabilistic model said it yeah. would. Or and it it's a guess at at the best of times. It would be like having someone with two coins flipping the coins and saying well there's a good chance that you'll get at least one heads and then you get you get two tails and they get mad at you it's like (laughs) no that doesn't make any sense yeah yeah that's that is an excellent analogy yeah you can't you can't blame someone for probability and that's what weather forecasting when it comes down to it that's what it is yeah I think that's all I have to say on that matter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all we have to say on everything, isn't it? I think for the time being, yeah. Yeah. We talked a lot. I'm surprised. As am I. Well, I'm I'm never actually surprised. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised, let's say. <laughs> you know what they say about pessimists, Rob? They're either right or they're pleasantly surprised. That's true. But I'm an optimist and I'm still pleasantly surprised sometimes. It's like uh, Futurama, those planet neutral people. It's like, 
I don't know. I really think anything that will happen. <laughs> How interesting. <sighs> All right, we done for the week? Well, the couple weeks, the month, whatever the, the, time interval we're on. The, we're done for the this episode, time interval, I think. The time interval wherever Nick has time to do stuff in between his very busy school schedule. Yeah, wah, that's been interesting. Tell you all about it off air. Sounds good. Uh, so I guess for the time being, I will direct people to unwindmedia.com slash EMW. That will take you to this show page. And uh, feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes if you like what we're talking about. Uh, we're also on Stitcher Radio. You can find us on, uh, or you can let us know any any goings-on that we should maybe know about or talk about at uh, Unwind Media on Twitter. I think that's uh, it's a good place to leave it. Yeah. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Nick. Talk to you then, Rob. Bye, everybody. Toodaloo.